Amen. And may God write it on our hearts that we may not sin against him. Um, there was a big uh, Christian, I'm using this fiction series of novels that were written 25 years ago now, called the Left Behind series. The Left Behind series. Some of you remember these. Uh, if you don't, just know this. They were extremely popular in the late 1990s and early 2000s when they were released. By the time the Left Behind saga was finished, after about 20 years, uh, it had 12 novels that were written uh, from 95 to 2004. There were four prequel novels going back before to tell the story 2005 to 2007. There were four major films by 2014. And that year in 2014, famous actor Nicolas Cage even starred in a film titled Left Behind. Millions of Americans, uh, millions, were impacted by this modern presentation of what's called the rapture, uh, the events of the tribulation, the, the things that are described in the Bible, but it was modernized in the story. The story focused on something called Christian dispensationalist end times. That's just fancy words for the end of the world, the end of the world biblically and the way that the world would end according to the Bible. It focused on that. The novels and the movie's opinions were really strong. They banked on, honestly, one thing in the viewer. If you read these books, if you watched this movie, if you saw this presentation, they banked on one thing, the hopeless feeling of being abandoned by God. That's what they banked on, the hopeless feeling of being abandoned by God. It was with the whole, uh, create. you could just tell, you know, it was never directly said, but everyone knew that the drawl of these stories, the drawl of these movies was, what if that happened to me? What if all of the sudden my worst fears were realized and what I had thought about God abandoning me was true? I was left to my destruction. I was left alone. Other people I loved were gone and I was left behind. What if that happened? I'd be hopeless. Uh, it's easy to say this was a bit of a huge deal uh, culturally until it wasn't, until everybody got over it. Everybody got over the uh, Left Behind series, uh, point proven. Some of you may not have even heard of it today. But the thing is, is people didn't get over the fear and the worry and the hopelessness that those movies drew on. It's hard to get rid of that. Our culture may move on to another distraction, but deep down, all of us battle hopelessness. All of us do. And we battle it still. All of us battle thoughts about being uh, abandoned by God, left behind, left to destruction, forsaken. And today, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe at times you feel hopeless. Maybe at times you fear the unknown. You are uncertain of your future. Some of you may know that God is good, but maybe you doubt that he cares for you. Maybe you're plagued by this. God knows me, but he doesn't walk with me. Or at least if he does, I have a hard time seeing it. I'm feeling left behind in my spirit. We struggle with this. At times, we feel left behind. Let me encourage you. If that's you today, today's text is for you. It's for me. It's for the church and it's for the lost sinner as well, someone who needs the hope to know that they're not left behind. Today's text lands us smack dab and honestly, arguably, the most discouraging moment of all time for mankind. If there was ever a time for mankind to feel left behind and it'd be understandable, it was after Jesus' ascension while they were waiting 
for what we're going to see next week in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. Today's passage takes place in that space, 10 days between when Jesus has left them, he's ascended, and they encounter the possible feeling of being left behind, being abandoned. But what we're going to see is, as you just heard read, the disciples battled this hopelessness. They battled it. When they were left behind, they battled it. And you and me can be uh, the same, we can, we can enter into the same faith that we see in these men. We can learn how to fare well according to God's word. We can stay strong and we can even set an example to others in the faith. Church, we can be equipped in our moments of waiting and be made ready by God like they were here. If you're lost today and do not believe, you can be made ready by first receiving Christ that they have faith in. They were left behind and yet they were equipped for it. They were equipped for it. You can draw on that hope today friend and fellow saint. What we're going to see this morning is that even though they were left behind, uh, what they had in this moment was enough for them, and it can be enough for me and you. There's four things that we see that they're left behind. It'll serve as our outline. They were left behind, but they were left with the truth. That's going to be point one. They were left behind, but they were left with their community. Number two. Thirdly, we're going to see they were left behind in their circumstances, with their circumstances, And we'll conclude by seeing they were left behind with hope, with hope. Don't worry, you'll get that uh, more as we go on. The first that I mentioned, though, is that they were left behind with the truth. They were left behind with the truth. Our historical narrative picks up here in verse 6, and it it picks up with this eager, very Jewish 11 apostles, these 11 men. And there they are in the scene in verse 6, and they are with the resurrected Jesus. They are not left behind yet in our text. Jesus has not ascended, but they will be soon. And before that, it's important for us to see the truth in these verses, 6 through 11. Uh, Luke jumps right in, right? He wastes no time to inform you, the reader, about what matters the most to these men. Right here in verse 6, we realize that these men, these disciples, they show that they are zealous as Jewish-born Jewish-raised, Hebrew-thinking type men during a time when the Jewish-Hebrew people were oppressed by Rome. They were under Roman oppression. And they think that way. Now, mind you, Christ has, at this point in verse 6, beaten death itself. He's conquered the grave. They see him in resurrection. There is no greater oppression that anyone faces than the threat of death. Sin brings death, and without the hope of Christ, there is death, period. It's the greatest fear, and Jesus has conquered it. But it's not what they come to him about. Instead, they come to him about what they think to be the greatest thing in front of them, what they think is the greatest difficulty and that is that they as a people, a Jewish people, are being oppressed by another people, a Roman people, an unbelieving people, and it's bothering them. And they come to Jesus. Now listen, it is both good and bad that they ask this in verse 6. Okay, it's bad because it shows just how of this world they still are. They're gods. They are God's people, all right? They are God's people. God has bought them with Jesus' blood. He's risen Jesus from the grave. He has chosen them to follow him, and uh, they they belong to the Lord. And yet they are concerned with worldly thought. 
By this time, them, they, they as a people are under a fifth regime of oppression on a large scale. They have seen Assyrians put their people down. They have seen Babylonians exile their people. They have lived under, under the evil command of Pharaoh in Egypt. I mean, they have seen exile and have known oppression. The Romans are no different. And they come to Jesus, though, and they say, will you relieve us of this generation's worth of oppression? Isn't now the time? It's bad for that reason. They can't see past their moment. But it's also good in this way. They're not hiding their thoughts. They're not hiding their honesty. They've been left behind, right, with the truth, which he hasn't left yet, but we're going to see that there is still something in them. In the most beautiful way that should give us hope, Jesus, even when raised to life and all-powerful, he is someone that we can turn to and ask our honest questions, and that's what they do. They trust who is before them, and so this is good about their question. Even though they ask the wrong question, they're asking it at the right place. They know to turn to the ones whose hands are pierced. They know to, to look upon the side that was you know, stabbed with a spear for them by faith. They know that if anyone can handle their question, it's Jesus. Their question is pure and simple. Will Jesus swap that donkey that he rode into humbly on to die on a cross? Will he swap that for a white horse? and a shield and an army that they get to lead? And will he lead them into Jerusalem and establish David's throne and say, this city belongs to God and kick Romans and Pontius Pilate out? Will he restore to them what they're looking for? They want political power. They want an ethnically restricted kingdom. They want their people. Sure, people could come and visit, but they want Jewish people there, right? Them being the, 12, the 11 leaders, and they also want it to be geographically restricted. Now, the apostles in this moment are a lot like you and I. They don't listen well. Months earlier, Jesus is recorded saying this to them. He says, but concerning the day or the hour of consummation, okay, when God literally establishes the new heaven on earth and is the ruler and the whole world submits to him, Jesus said concerning that, no one knows. In Mark 13, he said, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son himself, but only the Father. And then he said, be on guard, keep awake. But we see he is not a harsh master. When they come to Jesus, he's going to leave with them in this moment something beautiful. He's going to leave them truth. He's going to leave them truth. They come to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, are you kidding me, guys? You've missed it all the way up to this point? You've missed what I'm trying to establish. I'm not establishing your definition of what a good kingdom is. I'm establishing mine. He doesn't do that. Instead, what we see is that Jesus offers them, look, in verse 7, a simple rebuke. It is not for you. He reminds them of what he's already told them, which is super important for the church. He reminds them of truth. He says, it's not for you to know these times or these seasons. The Father has de determined. But... This is what he gives them, the truth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Luke records the words of Christ here to show the truth that Jesus left them with and, and informed them that they will always think too small. They will always think about their kingdoms and their way if they do it in their own strength. But, but as he says, if they will look to the real authority, the authority of God, the Holy Spirit himself, if they will look to God, they will have the greatest truth. I'm establishing a kingdom that never ends. 
Jesus is essentially saying, get your small minds off of this little kingdom that you would build. You see, they, they think they would follow Jesus into the city and rule righteously. But in doing so, they would fail to realize that Jesus' rule was established by his humility. His humiliation on the cross could only be glorified in the resurrection because we all realize he was stooping so low, lower than any kingdom. We don't need a Jewish leader of a Jewish nation to lead. We need a God who can enter into every kingdom, every culture, transcend it, and then rightly be its Lord. We need one that can go to the very ends of the earth and stand in front of any kingdom or governor or leader and say, here I am, I will not recant. Jesus is Lord. That's what what we need. They want something else. Jesus says, I leave and I send you my power. I go, but I send. I I will send you out as truth that you so easily forget. They're already looking to settle. They're supposed to be sent. But he leaves them with truth. R.C. Sproul tells the story uh, about a missionary because, guys, Acts 1.8 is the thematic verse. It is the thesis of this entire book we're reading right now, and it is fulfilled in this book, and uh, and it's about missions. It's about going and obeying God, and R.C. tells this story about a pastor that he had a a chance to hang out with a long time over in the Middle East one day. Uh, R.C. said he had great respect for this man, which is saying something, and uh, because R.C. is a respectable man himself. Now died and with and with Jesus, but you know he he tells the story that he saw a photo of this man, this missionary overseas, at church with all of his children, and in the photo they're holding assault rifles. His children are, his oldest sons are holding assault rifles, and R.C. asks him why, why was why in the world if they're at church are these these young these young followers of Christ holding these? And he said it's because we had been attacked 10 times by bombers in the last year coming here to try to attempt to kill the Christians that are here worshiping. But they've been a witness. They've been faithful. And though they had to have something to fear, you know, to get, keep these enemies away, they never recanted. They stayed there. They stayed there. They were willing to possibly endure this death of, 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 of being blown up. Why? And, and it stood out. You know why? Because of Acts 1.8. Because to receive power of the Holy Spirit and to go forth into the nations was the truth. Now, here's the deal about this first point. Verse 7 and 8 are a package deal. I mean, verse 7, Jesus rebukes us and tells them, look, you can't do this on your own terms. You can't do it on your own timing. It's according to my will. He tarries as more come in, and the numbers will fill up. But that's why he tarries, and we have to have the rebuke of 7 to see the power of verse 8. Now, he hasn't left them. He's given them truth. But I want to show you that when he does leave them next, you see that in verses 9 through 11 when he leads them. We need to make note of the truth of his ascension, for even in how he leaves them, he's going to leave them with hope. Okay? So look in 9. He said, when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Jesus' final appearance on earth, physically, recorded right here, it ends with him being carried away and hidden in the clouds. Now, at this point, there's wonder and awe. And so maybe there's not hopelessness, right? This is a bit of a high emotionally and spiritually for the disciples, They're standing there in wonder, and there's Jesus. And what happens? A cloud of glory comes over him. The image is really clear, and and it shares 
a picture even of what Luke had recorded called the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was, you know, and, and on the earth, when he was before his death, he was, you know, transformed and the glory of God shone through him and a cloud overshadowed him. And what this cloud is, it's, the, it's this glory of God. It's a glory cloud. The Shekinah glory is how uh, it's understood. It's this noteworthy connection that when God manifests his presence, you see it. There's the cloud of God. And that's what Jesus has received into above the earth. Now, I just want to quickly kind of give you something that I think is beautiful, but more than that, it's this truth I'm talking about that you can really bank on that can give you hope when you're hopeless, okay? There's this connection with this idea of Jesus going up that we see, and it's in the Old Testament. So in Exodus 40, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 40, there's a long, very long instruction about how to build the temple, which then was the tabernacle. It was this movable temple of God And Moses, having followed all those instructions, very long reading there, finally we realize in verse 33, he says, Moses finishes the work. He builds this temple according to God's standards, and he's done. And then the next verses, 34 and 35, describe the glory of God. Let me read it to you. It says, then the cloud covered that tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now I tell you that from Exodus because I want you to consider our scene this morning. Jesus said that tear this body down and in three days I will rebuild it. Tear this temple down. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the glory of God bodily. He is the manifestation of God, the image of God on earth. Okay? He he ascends above the earth in our text right now, and he's essentially erected in his resurrection a temple, right? The temple of God. And rather than being there in a kingdom that they would have set up, he actually ascends above the whole earth and is enshrined in a glory cloud taken away from them. What's happening here? Even in his leaving, listen to me, when we can't see Jesus, it's hard to believe. And yet here is God by a display covering Jesus physically so that we can believe. It's very important. Get this truth in our hearts. Because here is Jesus ascended and covered in the glory of God. And after he has just said, my glory is going to go all the way to the ends of the earth. Do you want truth that can sustain you? Be a living stone that points to the cornerstone. God's glory falls on the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and everyone knew God's presence was among them. Now God ascended, is surrounded by a cloud of glory, and everyone who believes knows his glory is for us and for the whole world. It will send them out. The absence of Jesus ushers in the reality of, of truth. People say, I wish I could walk and touch Jesus' hands like Thomas did. I wish that I could see him multiply the fish. If only that happened, I would believe. But God actually says, no, no, no. The way the gospel is preached and proclaimed is that you need the truth of it. You could eat all that fish and touch his hands inside and still walk away dumb and blind and destined for hell. Only one way can you really receive the truth, and that is to realize the earth is his footstool. You don't have to see to believe. You hope because God has told you. You hope because God has said it, it's true. 
And if we have a temple scene here, which I think we do, and we have the beauty of God and his people, we need some servants. And sure enough, verse 11 shows that two men stood there, right? And these two men are angels. That's why they're described as being clothed in bright colors. And they ask the question, guys, why are you gazing into heaven? Probably because they were in awe, right? But he tells them, this Jesus who was taken up from you, in the same way, he's going to come again. Now, It is really hard to capture in this text the force and the obvious effect that this promise had on these men, that this promise has had on the church moving forward since it, and what it should have on me and you today. From from this moment on, the reality of consummation, the reality of the promise of a restored paradise, the beauty of a sinless world is finally actually within reach from this moment. It's within reach for all of us. If you believe in this Christ, who you cannot see now, you wait for him and you do it with a missional patience. We will see in Acts that this promised return, it sends the martyr to his death. It sends the the exiled to his faith. And eventually, it sends generations of disciples into a fever of missional living. There is nothing discouraging about the cosmic patience of God, even some 2,000 plus years later as we still wait for these angels' words to be true. There's nothing discouraging about it. There's nothing hopeless. In this promise that Jesus will come back, you have everything you need to live life. Everything. Is it that real to you? The angels' assurance of his return, it does not start a Q&A with these men but rather it calls their minds back to remembrance of what Jesus just said. Go, go and fulfill my witness mandate and that's exactly what they do. Beloved, point one is we learn more from these men when we realize they were left behind with truth. They're left behind with truth. What Jesus has said is enough for them. They don't have to keep eating breakfast with him on the beach. They don't have to keep seeing him at his resurrection appearances. It's enough. He's enough. His word is enough. Right? And it can be our hope. Secondly, notice this. They're left behind with the truth. But we see in the text they're also left behind with community, with people. They're not alone. They're not alone. Verse 12 through 15 gives this account of the people that are there in this moment. Let me say something before I kind of walk you through some of this, if there is one thing that can lead us to hopelessness the most, I think it's isolation. I think it's being alone. Being alone or feeling like you're alone will lead to the worst struggles that we're capable of as sinful human beings. Being made in the image of God, it means that we're made for community because our God himself is a community. As a community within himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, right? And by demonstration, we realize that from the very beginning, Christianity has proven to be fundamentally corporate. It's corporate. You cannot do this alone, and they knew it. And verse 12 through 15 records it. They leave with the truth, as we just established, but they also leave together. And I want to see that for just a second. It's called community. 
a little Sabbath day journey away. That's just language that Luke uses to really show them uh, uh, that, that it wasn't far. So it's about two-thirds of a mile. There's a lot of reasons why they had it, but it was just the talk of the day. It'd be like, hey, just down the road. These men choose to go just down the road from the Mount of Olives back to Jerusalem altogether. And this group decides to do that. And listen, before this, before they were transformed by Jesus, they lived some 50 to 100 miles from one another. Some of them would spend no time together, and now they want to be together. They don't go back to the nets of the shores of fishing like they did before he rose. No, no, no. They're together and expectant. They need each other. They need each other. Luke gives us another completed list of these 11. You'll see that in verse 13. And notice that it's 11. Judas Iscariot is not on the list. He's not mentioned. We'll deal with him in a second. And it's certain and not disputed that Jesus was doing even the 12 disciples idea. Jesus was doing that in his ministry to reestablish this social identity in God. Now, they thought a Jewish social identity, which was, in fact, true. It's symmetrical. Look at the Old Testament. We have Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, which God grows and becomes the people of God, right? But in that, God was saying, though the 12 disciples look symmetrical, it's not just a Jewish identity. They are representative of what will be the nations coming to know Christ and experiencing community. God, in in the form of man, Christ, knew that we needed each other. It's amazing to see that they spend 10 days between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. 10 days. 10 days, no resurrection account of Jesus again. It's only what he just said, what you just heard, and 10 days with one another. I think this, verses 12 through 15, I think it's one of the most powerful verses in this this text before us. See who it brings together, okay? First, it's these apostles. They will be the leaders of this movement. And they're preparing themselves, we see, through the study of the word. Notice that there's women among them. That was scandalous for Luke to report that. He could have changed it, but he didn't because it couldn't be changed. It was the facts. So regardless of what people thought about women in that day, Luke said, hey, there were faithful women among us. They were essential to this movement. They were there following Jesus. And he has them there preparing themselves in the same way. We also have this example of Jesus' family which is an incredible example. You'll see that it says there that it's his brothers and sisters, if you have a note. So it's his mom, Mary, and his other siblings that were born after him. We learn in the Gospels that these brothers and sisters of Jesus, they didn't even believe in their own brother. They, they, they did not trust that he was the Messiah. They thought he was out of his mind and crazy. And now they've been changed. They've been changed by God and they're there. All of them doing what? Seeking first the kingdom of heaven and following the instructions of Christ. And they're doing it joyfully. Let's just ask simply and broadly a question here. When left behind by Jesus, what did this group of potentially hopeless, potentially scared, Jesus was, their leader was just crucified and killed. These potentially hopeless These potentially scared and worried individual believers do. You know what they did? They were together, period. They were together. They had the truth, as we've seen. They're going to study the word together and pray that we're going to conclude here in a moment. But at this time, in these verses, you know what? They're accounted for as being present. Let me just preach for a second, because the ministry of presence 
is sometimes the most valuable thing you can offer a hopeless saint. Just being there. Just being there together seems to be enough. No rush, no plans, no practices, just presence. Just presence. Sometimes a hurting believer needs to know that you don't expect them to prove that they're okay. But they're rather, it's just okay that they're not okay. Let me give you an example. I see this in, in funerals. I find, I've, been enough, I've been in ministry long enough to be around some funerals, some sad ones and hard ones. And I've been, uh, one particular comes to mind that I was really helping the family that buried their mother. And I remember just when we, uh, when we were at the services, there was a couple of people as I stood next to the sons of this, they buried their mother. And I was standing next to them. And there were a couple of people who meant well, but they came by and they promised, you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. It's going to work out. And I could just see it was just putting this pressure on these morning sons of, I got to be okay. And I see this in our work culture. I mean, sometimes people get, what, a week's worth of bereavement, maybe? And then you better get back at it and get productive. Put aside all that sadness and grief, and you need to get back. You need to be a productive contributor, right? I mean, we see this in the workplace. We see it, sadly, even in the church at times. But I just want to pause here and say, these people, like, Without the answer yet, like without like how it was going to happen, they had the truth and they had one another. And that seems to be enough. They were willing to press pause and be together. Look, it's hard to have faith to just be present in each other's lives. It takes work. I say it that way on purpose. If you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't have faith in Christ who gives you peace, then your presence among others, it will be outed as fake. It'll be conjured and created and forced, and people know that. People know when community's not real, right? They know when it's not issuing from a true heart. When someone doesn't want to be there, people know it. But on the flip side, when you want to be there, and the example is here, they didn't want to go back to their old lives. They needed each other, and they needed this. Thus insert the power of God. They were left behind with truth, but they were left behind with one another, and that comforted them. That comforted them. We see thirdly, that they weren't just left behind with truth, they weren't just left behind with community, but they were also left behind with their circumstances. And guys, their circumstances weren't good. That's why I think this passage is full of hope. (laughs) Their, Their circumstances were tough. You know, people say, when life hands you lemons, make what? Lemonade. But that saying's really dumb. Because the trials in life, rarely do they do they feel like citrus, right? I mean, when you talk about hard things in life, it's not a cup of lemonade. It's, it's bowels gushing. It's death. It's difficult. It's slow and painful and sometimes brutal. We cannot preach this passage of Scripture and avoid the gritty, difficult, and even grotesque reality of sin's darknesses. They're there. They have the truth. But they're also currently surrounded by their circumstances. The next verse shows us that so clearly. The absolutely uh, absolutely tremendous thing about the faith of these men and women in the text, as an example to us, is that they did not let the dark parts of their consequences, the difficult uh, problems of their day, they did not let it lead them to doubt. They instead let it lead them to obedience. So I want to ask two questions. Call them subpoints in this one in this point here. But first, like what were their circumstances? And then second, what did they do about it? So what, what were their circumstances? 
Let's make it plain. One of their friends, one of those closest to them for the last three and a half years, had betrayed Jesus. And then he'd done the unimaginable, horrible thing, and he took his own life. The whole of, of his suicide is exposed. Judas's death is exposed in this passage. And we realize it was an issue among them. So skip verse 16 for a second and look at verse 17 through 19 again. We'll come back to 16, but look at 17 and 19. Peter speaks first. You see that? In the first part, he's referring to Judas, having just named him in verse 16, uh, before, before everyone and, and he refers, you know, he says, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then we see that Luke includes this most difficult to read and, and imagine account of Judas's betrayal. He includes the account of Judas's unbearable guilt and the horrific death that he faced. It's something out of horror movies in one sense when you read it. It really is. We learn from this that Judas had a most hasty and horrific experience in death. We have to read and believe that he must have hung himself over a cliff or over some you know, precipice of some sort. And when he tried, evidently the rope had broken or the branch had broken. Something happened hurling him toward a terrible death that the violent description we get here fits. It was a, it's just dark. The circumstances are bleak when they think about this. Luke includes this note, this parenthetical, I think, to give us the room, right? Like sometimes you need the room, right? And if you read a story, you need to get the room, you need to get the scene. And Luke's saying, look, get the scene here. Like they've gathered in truth, but it's been some time. It's been like five or six, seven days, eight days. We don't know when, but sometime after 1-8. And now like all they can remember is that horrible scene where one betrayed Jesus. And what are they supposed to do? So the circumstances are dire, there was a sculptor in the Middle Ages who, his name was Master, uh, Master Giz, Gizlebertus. I, I don't know if that's how you say it, but, but he imagined the scene that we read here, and he put a famous work together. He sculpted. It's, a, it's on the St. Lazare Cathedral in France. And when you see it in the scene, there's two demons, two demons that are pulling Judas down, assisting his demise. That's the circumstances. That's what's sticking out. We learn circumstances of, their, of their, their story through the story of Judas, but, but do we get the gravity of how they feel? I mean, let me help you. Judas, we are reminded here by Peter, had the same calling as the other disciples. He shared the same memories that Matthias shared, who's going to be appointed. He spent the same amount of time with Jesus, earthly. He heard the same teaching, and he had the same allotted share in Jesus' life and ministry as the rest of them. Peter makes that clear. So you know that this is troubling for sure. And the apostles know it, and this was their circumstance. Difficult memory and trial. You ever been there? Well, let's ask the second question. What'd they do about it? What'd they do about it? Look at verse 16 now. Back up. Brothers, Peter says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. You hear that? You want to know what they did when they were discouraged by their circumstances? They looked in the Bible. <laughs> They read the Bible. They trusted God. It's the scriptures which the Holy Spirit spoke. You said, God, beforehand, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, that he would become a guide and, and walk in his own guilt and arrest Jesus. 
You hear that? They trust God's word for the unexplainable and the unimaginable, for the horrible. This is the first use in Acts of the word graphe. It's the word for scripture. It's the word for the Old Testament writings. What's awesome is this is going to be used later to capture the words that the Holy Spirit inspires them to write. But they got their Old Testament scrolls out and they're pouring over them in the space of 10 days, informing their consciences to believe. Jesus said it, it's going to happen. Jesus said it, it's got to be real. If he said it, it's got to inform us. They read the word through the lens of Christ, through the lens of faith, and they get it. They get encouragement. And that's where they hear from God directly. These men just witness Christ ascend into heaven. Check this out. They don't seek a sign now. Isn't that awesome? They just saw the resurrected Jesus ascend into heaven after the miraculous life he lived. You would think they would say, all right, affirm what's happening now by sending, sending Jesus or some massive sign. No, they just read their Bibles. This was insanely spiritual, and they weren't begging God to do something awesome. They read their Bibles, and in it, they found hope. They found explanation for what was, seemed like total horror around them. God spoke through David, and he did it concerning Judas. What they do about their circumstances, guys? They trusted God. Verse 20 and 21 show that Peter stands on the word of God, and he tells them, here's our answer. They understand that these known psalms of David, that they actually are messianic. They, they refer to the, the, the Messiah to come, and in them we learn about this horrible story with Judas. It's God who actually predetermined this, and, and that should give them comfort, and they find it as comforting. Now, John MacArthur so helpfully said, quote, Peter is using the most compelling proof, Scripture, to reassure the hearers that Judas's defection, that is his, his betrayal, and their choice of his replacement were all part of God's plan. That's a good way to say it. The most compelling proof. Think about this. Peter could have stood up and said, guys, let me tell you about my personal experience. In my personal experience, I was almost just like Judas. Three times I denied the Lord. Three times. A little girl that had no sway over my soul, and I thought that she could ruin it in hell. And so I betrayed him to them. I'm just as guilty, but then God restored me. And three times over, he said, I love you, I love you, I love you. Peter could have pointed to his experience in this moment, and that could have been recorded to us. But guess what? His experience was not pointed to. It could have been valid, but it wasn't. It wasn't what he experienced that got him through difficult circumstance. It was actually not the singing. Now, granted, we're reading the Psalms. They're studying them. They could have just sang it. We know that that's their hymn book that he's quoting. Somehow, they could have sang, and we don't know how they did it back then, but they sang these songs. Like, we don't have the music. We just have the, the truth. But they could have busted out in a song. They could have let the intoxicating moment of an emotional Band-Aid fuel, fuel their hearts. And I think it would have been fine to sing. Honestly, they probably sang in some of the 10 days that they gathered, if we're just being honest. We don't know. But what's recorded for us is not some get spectacularly high on the emotional appeal of God, because right now, we all agree as we're singing that he had a plan. That's not what he said. That's not what they did. It wasn't his experience. It wasn't some emotional song. It was not moving on either. It wasn't like a move on, get over it. Let's just hush, hush, put the whole field of blood conversation aside. We don't know how to deal with those details. No, no, no. They didn't rush it. They didn't move on to some list of good deeds that they could do. They did none of those things. You know what they did? Beloved, they opened their Bibles. They said, life's hard and, I'm just, and I need hope. 
So I'm not going to chase experience because I've, I've done that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it fails me. I'm not going to chase some emotional experience because guess what? My emotions ruin my life half the time. I'm going to chase after what is revealed to me in the word of God because no man takes it away. And what did God do? He met him. He met him. Listen, beloved, turn to God's word. When you have hard circumstances, turn to God's word. The psalmist declares, with my whole heart, all of me, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. They had no ability to fathom what Judas would do, but they had read Psalms, (laughs) right? And God reaches into what they had read and known, and he said, yeah, that, that you can build on. You may not have an answer as to why I appointed Judas for destruction, but you know what? I'm in control, and I love you, and I'm here. You can bank on what I've said. And when you go read those Psalms, I'd encourage you, if you do the study and you realize what's quoted here in Psalm, you go read around them, you will have your whole life enlivened by hope. You'll realize that we get this because we got to connect it to the story, right? But we also got to realize it has a context, and that context was a comfort to these people. They were willing to gather for a long time, days, around something old and ancient, and God changed them for it. Now, if that don't sound like church, I don't know what, I don't know what does. <laughs> like, that is church. And church doesn't appeal to your emotions sometimes. Thank God for that. Church sometimes is stingy and hard and a bunch of letters on a page. And we're better for it because we're his. And that is what happens in their circumstances. Well, what about hope? Let's finish this out. They were left behind. And they had the truth. And they have each other. And we just saw that they have enough of God's word to get through their circumstances. But what about hope? Do they have hope? Yeah, they do. Now, you may ask yourself, is hope the right word for the final verses of the text? I mean, you know, it's full of action by the apostles. They're, I mean, action that really honestly could be debated. I mean, are they obeying God when they determine the criteria for an apostle, which is what they do? Are they obeying God when they appoint Matthias? What about this whole casting lots thing? Is, are they obeying God right now as they do that? You could debate their actions, and, and, th- and those are good thoughts. Uh, you should look them up. Honestly, it could be a fifth point, left behind and obeying. But we don't have time, and that's what Bible study's for. But I don't think it's the heart of what's happening in these last verses, honestly. I think what's happening in the heart of this passage in these last verses, it's most known in verse 24. It's seen in verse 24. It's they're left behind with hope. If you read verse 24, it says that they prayed, saying, and listen to this prayer. This is not Peter, mind you. This is all of them. He may be voicing it, but they are praying together like we're going to do today. And this is what they say. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. I want you to see this morning, they pray with clarity about the details. And these details are beyond their control. But yet they pray with clarity. Okay? They see the responsibility that Judas threw aside. And they speak before God with a clear understanding that God's word gave to them. Listen to me. They may not understand why God did this, and yet they speak it back to him word for word like he said as a request. That is important. If your prayer life is empty and broken because you feel like your prayers just go up to the ceiling and come back to you, maybe inform them with the word of God a little bit more because that's what they do. They don't have a full grip of this. I guarantee it. None of us do. Me and you could debate for hours. What was God doing in Judas? That's hard. But they say, you know what? Hard truth. We're going to believe God. You got a plan. And they say it back to him. That's super important. They pray with clarity. They pray with boldness. 
By faith, they're praying for this appointment. But ultimately, we need to look at the way they talk about God because that's where we see the hope. Notice they said, you, Lord. Pause. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Their salvation is informing them in this moment. They don't rush past Lord. Lord, we serve no other than the risen Christ, our Lord. Romans 10.9 has a very serious outworking here before it was even written. The disciples' salvation is at work. So so we know they're saved. We know that they belong to the Lord. They have been brought to faith in Christ. That is the gospel. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, he will return. they, They trust that. They say, you, Lord. And then check this out. Then they pray, who knows the hearts of all. Don't rush past this. This is our concluding thought this morning. At the center of their declaration is the hope, excuse me, at this, in the center of it, with the hope of their actions tagged along in it, there is this faith that shows up where they say, no matter what we ask for, God, here's what we know. You know everything. You are in control. And that gives us hope. We know that you know the hearts of all. Regardless of everyone's opinion that's in this room right now, God, you know, period. He knows, and his knowledge is enough to give them hope. His knowledge is enough for them to obey. It's for them to search the word diligently, for them to be together. Listen, brothers and sisters, knowing God produces hope. Forgetting God produces despair. The the same brother, Peter, goes on to write this years later to churches like us. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What this brother stands up and prays for in a time of hopelessness, he's able to write years later to a bunch of hopeless people, and it's the same message. Hope fully. You hear it? Are you waiting on something today? Are you waiting on a breakthrough of some sort? Hope fully. You remember that? The fact that uh, you remember Jesus' mom and brothers and them are there? You remember that? One of them's name's James. One of them that prayed this prayer's name is James. And James writes and later to the, to the churches and, and that, are, that are spread out from persecution. And he says, hey, do you lack wisdom? Do you? Well, ask God. Same thing he's doing here. Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But ask in faith with no doubting. For the one that doubts, he's like a wave of the sea that's tossed about. Now, do you hear it? You feeling left behind? You feeling weighed down? Waiting on the Lord to do something? God says, ask with no doubt. How? Well, believe the one you are asking is generously giving without reproach. God is always happy to give without reproach when we beseech him in hope. Paul says, rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And check it out, character, it produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. I pray you feel that, that, that if you feel left behind this morning, that you will set your hope on Christ like these men did, even in his absence. To believe in what you cannot see sounds absolutely insane to the world. But to the Christian, that is all of our hope. We hope fully in what we cannot see. For we know that what we cannot see will be revealed in hope, Romans 8. We eagerly await our adoption as sons and daughters. 
We eagerly await the consummation when our Father comes back and He gets us. And until then, we know we have the truth. We know we have each other. We know that we have His Word through our circumstances, no matter what they are, and we hope in God. We hope in God. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing uh, about God's power over our circumstances as he moves in a mysterious way. Let me pray. Pray with me. God, I pray that you will help us to see the truth, believe the truth, and know the truth of your word. Father, if anybody here does not believe the gospel, I pray that as it's been preached, that they would receive Christ, that they would look to Jesus. The one who, who ascended was the one who died. The one who died was the one who rose, and the one who rose can give them life today. Grant salvation. For those in the, in, the, in the church, Father, for those who believe, Father, give us the hope that is, is present among these men. Even when their circumstances were hard, Lord, they trusted you. God, even through maybe fear and worry, they trusted you. Lord, help us to have such faith. Help us to believe that when we can't see it, you're still working, that you move in a mysterious way oftentimes planting your feet directly in the storms and trials that so plague us. So teach us, God. Help us to share in your holiness through the glory of your discipline. And help us not to ask, Lord, why in a, in a, in a horrible way, but to bring our questions to you honestly and to do it with faith. So in all this, we pray that you'll help us and strengthen your church. In Jesus' name, amen.